God's grace is universal. Salvation is for everyone. God's grace gives us a purpose. Once we recognize that we are loved, accepted, and welcomed just as we are, we are moved to love one another as Christ loved us. There are some who believe that an emphasis on grace can lead the religious to become stagnant and satisfied. Only if we do not understand this text, though. Our good works don't save us. We are saved so that we might do the good works that God had prepared for us. And Jesus is our example. We follow Jesus' example, and in so doing, we point people towards God's ultimate plan to make our world whole once again. All will be made new. Every good work is an act of solidarity with God's purposes for our lives and for this world. Every good work is a signpost pointing people toward a time when there will be no more suffering or sorrow or sickness or shame or brokenness. Every good work bears witness to the God who is love. The scripture I just read from, the book of Ephesians, was beloved by John Wesley, the Methodist movement's founder. It was a hallmark in his preaching throughout his life, and he pursued grace with his whole being. Wesley's teaching and preaching in the Methodist tradition focus on three forms of grace, provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Provenient grace is God's activity in our lives and in the world before any of us know it. God's love and goodness are ever-present and always accessible, yet God doesn't coerce or force any direct action upon us. Our will and our agency remain intact. Justifying grace is our affirmative response to God's declaration that we are free from sin, guilt, and death, and it's God's working in our hearts to remove any shame, to reconcile, to restore, and to make us new. Sanctifying grace is the ongoing activity of God in our lives, guiding us to our purpose that leads us to respond by continually growing in our love of God through loving our neighbor as ourselves. Each of these three forms of grace in Wesley's preaching and in the Methodist tradition reflects the broader witness of the whole of Scripture that demonstrates God's love for the world and God's ultimate plan and desire to repair all of creation. It also bears the influence of the 16th century theologian Jacobus Arminius, who rejected the doctrine of predestination as described by the 16th century theologian John Calvin. Calvin thought, taught that all of humanity was completely and utterly depraved and could not choose God on their own. Therefore, in God's sovereignty and supreme foreknowledge, God chose winners and losers ahead of time. John Calvin's view of predestination posited that some in humanity, though through no choosing of their own, are destined for eternal salvation and the rest for eternal damnation. Wesley and our Methodist tradition find that view to be appalling because it paints God as cold, uncaring, unloving, and unjust. We affirm that salvation is for everyone and that God's grace is universal. 
The reason John Wesley loved Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, our scripture text this morning, is because it conveys the three forms of grace so clearly. Well, we are in the midst of a six-week series called Revival, Faith as John Wesley Lived It. We are exploring the life of someone who became the father of a revival movement that swept across England in the 18th century and then into the United States of America. Last week, Pastor Tracy talked about a turning point in John Wesley's faith at a church on Aldersgate Street in London. Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed when he understood the immensity of God's grace as an undeserved gift. Up until that point, Wesley was devout as a follower of Jesus Christ, but he was filled with anxiety and worry because he wasn't sure if he measured up. In what has become known as his Aldersgate experience, Wesley was awakened to grace. Have you ever been that person that saw the greatest movie or ate the most amazing breakfast taco or traveled to the most beautiful beach and had to tell everyone about it? So much so and with so much passion that it was sort of annoying and maybe even a little bit obnoxious. Well, that was John Wesley after his Aldersgate experience on May 24th, 1738. He'd experienced something so good and so meaningful and he wanted to share it with everyone. His motives were good, yet his preaching method at the time was maybe a bit abrasive. After offending uh, pastors and parishioners alike, Wesley was only allowed to preach in five churches in London and its surrounding areas by the end of 1738. Now, don't get me wrong. The Church of England, the church where Wesley was ordained, was in need of reviving. There was a predominant lack of fervor and action that left the church with little influence in people's everyday lives and in society. During John Wesley's rejection and exclusion from the mainstream church, something new took shape. George Whitfield, who was a former member of Wesley's Methodist group at Oxford, he sent Wesley a letter in the spring of 1739, inviting him to preach and to minister in Bristol, a city that was about 100 miles west of London. Wesley accepted the invitation and traveled to this port city of 50,000 people, which was known for shipping and coal mining. These two industries were demanding and didn't pay the majority of its workers very well, which kept many from being a part of established churches. George Whitfield saw this dilemma as an opportunity to take the good news of the message of Christ's salvation directly to the people. Whitfield preached to thousands in open fields near the coal mines in a village on the outskirts of the city called Kingswood. Wesley was conflicted about how appropriate this kind of preaching was. But after Wesley saw Whitfield preach from a hillside with great effectiveness to 30,000 coal members and their family members, Wesley changed his mind. In fact, Wesley did the same thing. And he felt better about it after he remembered how Jesus preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount from a hillside. It wasn't all unicorns and rainbows once Wesley started preaching outdoors. There were territorial parish priests who didn't like Wesley preaching in their region without their invitation or approval. Wesley responded, too bad, so sad. 
No, he didn't say that. <laughs> he said, the world is my parish. His heart was stirred by God's grace that he experienced for himself. And he couldn't bear to see people that were hopeless or, or, or stuck or oppressed or in pain. Wesley's heart was so stirred by the plight of these coal miners in Bristol and the surrounding areas of Kingswood that he started a hospital. He wrote a medical textbook. He started a school and he cared tangibly for the poor and the mistreated. For Wesley's salvation was centered in God's action and those who experienced the saving action must respond with love for their neighbor. Christ's command to love one another as I have loved you was at the forefront of Wesley's faith. I love all the ways that Westlake UMC embodies Wesley's slogan, the world is my parish. Our congregational care team brings communion to unwillingly absent members. Our volunteers and mission go to Victoria and other coastal areas damaged by Hurricane Harvey to rebuild, to help restore people's lives. Our Habitat for Humanity team brings their skills and leadership to local Austin communities to help make the dream of home ownership a reality for families here in Austin, families that are in need. We have a team of families that go into Belmont Village to lead worship for seniors that are unable to leave the premises to do so. We have a team that regularly goes to the border and shares the love of Jesus in very practical ways and to acknowledge and affirm the dignity of those seeking a better life here in this country. And there are so many other ways that Westlake UMC takes the church beyond the walls. Mobile Loaves and Fishes, Community First Village, Foundation for the Homeless, Justice for Our Neighbors, Refugee Services of Texas, The Sewing Room at Breckenridge Hospital, Got Nets, Any Baby Can, Women's Storybook Project, Kairos Prison Ministry, and so many more. Even though we're not meeting together under this same roof each week, we are still the church. We live and function as the church beyond the walls, representing God's radically inclusive love right where we live, work, and play. May God continue to revive our hearts to make the world our parish and to be the church beyond the walls. John Wesley may not have been welcome to preach in local parishes, but no one could keep him from preaching in open air spaces. That's exactly what he did. Thousands heard Wesley preach and crowds had their faith revived. And many others began to follow the, in the way of Jesus for the very first time. Wesley knew that in order for this work to be sustainable in Bristol and in the surrounding areas, people needed a place to continue growing in their faith. They needed encouragement and accountability to be personally transformed by God's grace and to share God's transforming love in practical ways with others. He started religious societies that were basically faith support groups. It's been said that George Whitfield was the better preacher, but there is no doubt that John Wesley was the better organizer and administrator. It's also very likely true that Wesley was a workaholic. He wasn't perfect. But in a matter of months, as the public ministry gained traction after those first open-air meetings, Wesley and the members of two new religious societies pooled their resources and built the first Methodist meeting house at the end of 1739. Here at what was called the New Room, these members 
uh, of the faith met every night of the week to sing hymns, to hear preaching, and to be encouraged to continue in their spiritual development. This grassroots organization was the foundation for the launching of the Methodist movement. John Wesley and the New Movement started hundreds of preaching houses all across England in the 18th century. At these preaching houses, they developed these ever-growing, highly organized small groups, which became known as bands and class meetings. They followed a prescribed method, which created a reproducible structure for growth and expansion. The members of these groups held one another accountable to faithfully following Christ's example. And they would ask another, uh, one another a key question. How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? I love seeing the various groups within the church that are meeting regularly on Zoom and in digital spaces right now. There are Bible studies, prayer groups, Sunday school classes, small groups, book studies, yoga classes, and so many other things happening. And people of all ages are meeting together. Studies are showing that churches with small group infrastructure are holding steady, and some are even growing in the midst of this pandemic because people are gathering together online, checking up on the well-being of each other, and growing in their faith together, even though not gathering together in person. We need each other. We can't do this on our own. We are stronger together because we were created for community. Like Wesley, we understand that the best of you might be the very thing that helps bring out the best in me. May God's grace continue to lead us and revive us in this season so that we might go on embracing old ways of doing things that help us grow in our, in our faith and in grace. And may God's grace continue to breathe new creativity to lead us and to revive us in this season to find new ways of being the church beyond the walls. I want to close with this. John Wesley's understanding of grace was different than his preaching counterpart, George Whitfield. Whitfield interpreted the theology of predestination like John Calvin did. Whitfield believed that grace was limited. Wesley believed that grace was universal. Whitfield believed salvation was only for some. Wesley believed salvation was for all. Interestingly enough, though, both preached to as many as possible. And one must wonder if Whitfield did it out of sheer obedience and duty, while Wesley did it out of conviction that God's grace is universal. I'm guessing that neither were perfect or completely resolute in their motivations. And I realized that I could maybe be caricaturing uh, both of them by doing this. But this difference between Whitfield and Wesley was so significant that it split them apart. And when Whitfield departed to preach in England's colonies, he left the religious societies in which he led. He left them to John Wesley's care. Our theology informs the way that we live. What we believe about God informs the way we read scripture and the way we treat our neighbor. In the 15th chapter of the gospel, according to Luke, there are three parables that Jesus tells about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And I want to focus briefly on the first two of these parables. 
And I encourage you to read all three of these parables in their entirety because they are fantastic and they reveal something amazing about the character and nature of God. Interestingly, these parables are often framed around who or what is lost. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin are twin stories. And the first one, the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and searches until he finds the one lost sheep. In the second story, the woman searches her home until she finds the one lost coin. By the way, I think it's pretty cool that Jesus in the first century world utilizes the image of a woman to represent God and the tenacious activity of God in searching for us. What is so striking to me about these two parables is that neither the shepherd nor the woman had any intention of giving up or allowing the sheep or the coin to stay lost. In both stories, we see the character of God. The emphasis is not on lostness, but foundness. Foundness. I know that's not really a word. And every time I say that word, I want to say it like Arnold Schwarzenegger, foundness. But foundness is really an incredible concept here. And when that which was lost is found, God rejoices and invites everyone to rejoice as well. There's another important thing to notice in the story. The one lost sheep and the one lost coin already belonged to the shepherd and to the woman. If the one sheep and the one coin did not already belong to them, why would they even be looking? They wouldn't. Do you see how important this is? In these stories, Jesus is telling us that everyone belongs to God, the one whose image we all bear. And that is why God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus came to seek, to seek and to save that which is lost until we are found. Our theology informs the way we live. If we believe that some belong to God and others don't, that some are my spiritual siblings and others are not, then I can create theological space to justify the exclusion of many and only the inclusion of some. This theology of grace is a critical piece of our conviction. Grace is universal. Salvation is for all. God is seeking every last one of us until we are found. And God is inviting us to participate in the works God has prepared for each one of us. This is the theological conviction that caused Wesley to proclaim, the world is my parish. You are loved and accepted just as you are. Grace is given as a gift. When each one of us utilizes the gifts and passions that we've been given to do all the good we can, we find that our lives are filled with purpose and with such joy. And that work is multiplied exponentially when we do it together. May God revive our hearts today to receive and pursue grace. Amen.